You're listening to the Food Freedom Podcast, hosted by me, Dylan Murphy, Registered Dietitian Nutritionist. Food Freedom Podcast explores the topics of intuitive eating, mindset, and body respect to help you create a lifestyle of lasting food freedom. We believe it's possible to feel confident in your food choices and connected to your body. And here on Food Freedom Podcast, we will show you how. I am a registered dietitian nutritionist and owner of Dylan Murphy Nutrition, a nutrition coaching practice helping women make peace with food, heal their relationship with their body, and create sustainable health habits. We welcome all foods over here, from kale salads to queso and everything in between. Let's dive in. This episode of Food Freedom Podcast is sponsored by our free method recipe book. Head to freemethodnutrition.com slash recipe book to get yours today. Welcome back to another episode of Food Freedom Podcast. Today I have Catherine, which I should have asked you how to pronounce your last name <laughs> because I feel like it's not super easy. <laughs> You are right. It is not. So it's yes. pronounced Metzelar. It's, okay. it's a Dutch last Metzler. name, double okay. A's. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. I would have totally butchered it. So I'm glad I didn't try. <laughs> I've had a few other guests like that where I like go to introduce them and I'm like, can you just say your last name for me? <laughs> but I can say Catherine. <laughs> um, totally. Yes. Um, but yeah, Catherine, welcome to the show. Um, Catherine is also a registered dietitian in the non-diet space, as well as a certified intuitive eating counselor. Um, and, and I would love if you just take a minute or really however long you want to just tell our audience a little more about who you are, um, maybe your practice and that sort of thing. Yeah. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me, Dylan. Yeah. Um, as you mentioned, my name is Catherine Metzlar. I'm a registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating practitioner. I um, own Brave Space Nutrition, which is a group uh, practice in Seattle, Washington. Um, I see clients individually. I also run a women's virtual body image and learning support group. Um, and yeah, I focus on, I and our practice focuses on working with folks all the way along the spectrum, individuals that have diagnosed eating disorders, subclinical eating disorders, um, folks that are experiencing disordered eating behaviors and patterns, um, and then folks too that are just chronic dieters and wanting to heal their relationship with food and their bodies. Yeah, that's awesome. And how long has, has your practice been around? My practice has been around, I'll be going on three years here mm-hmm. shortly. Um, yeah. So it's exciting. Yes. I feel like that's similar. Mine's like, I think about three years too. Um, I need to like remember back when I started it. I feel like it was a blur. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that's awesome. That's so good. Um, so tell me a little more, even just kind of about how you got into the space as either a dietitian or just into the space of like non-diet, intuitive eating, eating disorder work? Yeah. So um, the best way I think to describe it is that my eating disorder is really what propelled me into mm-hmm. uh, the field of nutrition, which I know is really common for a lot of folks, a lot of dietitians, a lot of people that are in the nutrition field. Um, but I was not aware of it at the time. I was very much um, in my eating disorder and just to be a quote unquote expert at the things that I was already doing and practicing. Um, 
And because, you know, for me with orthorexia, the kinds of things that I was doing and practicing were considered to be quote unquote healthy and um, was getting lots of accolades and respect for that. And so I was like, oh, well, this just makes sense. I'm going to just go and get my master's and, um, and, and be the expert I've always wanted to be. Um, and then, and then I was able, it was really, um, when I went to go study, that was the first time that I was confronted with, um, with my eating disorder and, Mm. um, and, and that really began my process of, of healing. And so I like to say that, um, my, my own experience with my own relationship with food and my own relationship with my body, um, is what then later on, um, led me to wanting to work with people and support Mm -hmm. them in a way that, um, I didn't even know existed for a long mm. time. Hopefully, you know, in, in the realm of prevention, but most certainly even when folks are really, really stuck in it, being able to help them get out of it and to to heal because life is super short and I want food um, and body not to be something that's controlling, controlling yeah. their life and really like sucking the life out of them. Mm, that's so good. And I think, I mean, I see this with so many practitioners because I have a story pretty similar to yours. Like, I feel like when we've been through that, it gives you like, I don't know, it gives you this like relatability or like I've been in your shoes, even if my story isn't exactly like yours. Um, and I think it sometimes can be empowering for clients too. I mean, depending on how much of our story we disclose with them, but empowering for them to see like there is life on the other side. Um, because I know a lot of times with whether it's just dieting or, or eating disorders, it's easy to feel like, is there even life outside of this? Oh, a hundred percent because it's, it's, it's for a lot of folks, it's all consuming. It takes up so much um, time, whether it's the food behaviors themselves or the thoughts about food, the, um, the over-exercising or engagement with exercise. I mean, it, it takes over your whole life, impacts your relationships, um, your friendships, and your ability just to be able to have the freedom to move through this world without being um, uh, preoccupied constantly with your body and food. Mm, Yeah. Which is so hard in this world we live in that puts this high, high emphasis on the size of our bodies, how much we eat, how little, or I guess I'd probably say how little we eat, how much we move our bodies, um, that it, it feels almost counterculture, I feel like. But that's why it's so powerful when clients step up to do that hard work and so freeing yeah. for them. Oh yeah. I talk about that all the time and it often actually makes me quite angry that this work is so counterculture because it, it, um, it makes a lot of sense. And we know, like I know both clinically um, and also what we know in terms of the research as well, that it, it, we, we know that it works. Um, and yet, and yet it's so counterculture, which can often lead and leave people feeling really lonely as they heal um, and get a ton of pushback, right. From family and people in their lives, which makes the healing process even harder. I often say to a lot of my clients, like it's really hard to recover into a culture that essentially has an eating disorder. Mm, Yeah. That's a really good way to put it. And when you're bringing, you brought this up earlier, like when you're being praised for these habits of, you know, probably over-exercise and under eating, it can be hard too to try and like, okay, well, people are complimenting me. They're saying this is good. And now I'm going to try and stop doing it. Like that doesn't make sense. Um, but it all roots back to what you said of like being able to live a more full life and not being so focused on food and body. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I often too say that, um, I just posted on this exact topic on Instagram. I think it was a day or two ago about the process of the loss of identity. I mean, we identify so much with the disordered eating, the eating disorder, the diet, whatever else it might be. And as we begin to move away from that, not only is it hard because we're getting this pushback from family, from culture, et cetera, but we're also losing parts of ourselves that, um, for good or for bad may have benefited us, maybe felt good to get praise about things, to be given attention in that way. And so it's hard in so many ways to choose recovery, um, but that is a, a really hard part of it, I think. Yeah, you're like, it's letting go of this thing that's felt safe for so long and realizing that it's actually not not safe, but it's terrifying, um, which I feel like is why support through, you know, dietitian, therapists, support groups, other ways is vital to have that system. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I created the support group that I run um, for, yeah, for body image, for learning, because so often with my individual client work, as I'm sure you probably do too, I would hear over and over again, you know, I'm, I'm so lonely. There's no one in my life that can relate to what I'm experiencing. Um, there's no one around me that can say, yeah, me too, or by extension, no environments in which they feel safe enough to be able to talk about what they're experiencing outside of, for example, their one-on-one work, maybe with their dietitian or therapist. Um, and, and healing happens in community. And so I think mm-hmm. that there's just so much power um, to be around people that are ha- experiencing similar things or have experienced similar things in that yeah. way. Oh, I agree completely. Especially if your community is, again, totally opposite of the direction you're trying to head, support groups can be so, so important in, in recovery and yeah. any shape of walking away from, from diets. Um, yes. So shifting gears a little bit, I would love to talk about, because I told you before we hit record that I had found the blog you had written on overeating and, and why you don't love that word. And I fully stand behind you on that and totally agree. Um, and so I would love to just have a conversation more around that because I think, you know, I see that a lot with clients and even just talked about in our culture, this idea of over even, I mean, just all these characteristics we give to eating, overeating, binge eating, emotional eating, like boredom, like there's just all these different definitions we give eating. Um, So yeah, I would love, I mean, I guess first kind of going to the overeating, like tell me a little more, even maybe what first kind of sparked that for you of like, I don't think I like this word and like, Mm -hmm. here's why. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anything that has over, over in it, I'm always suspicious of generally, especially when we're talking, as you mentioned, like um, one of the words that comes to mind is like overindulgence or gosh, another one is overweight, which we could, we could talk about in just a moment. The <laughs> yeah. <color is. laughs> Uh, but what I have seen in, in clinical practice and most certainly in personal experience as well, but in thinking about my work with clients um, is that there's this consistent and constant use of overeating, quote unquote, huge quotes. Mm-hmm. Every time I say overeating, we're just going to yeah. assume from this point on that they're in big quotes. Yeah. Um, that, that it's something that's used pretty ubiquitously and yet no one really knows what it means. So oftentimes in my work, I'll say, you know, I'm, I'm just so curious to know, how would you describe this word so I can make sure that when you say it, we're on the same page. And every time I asked someone, whether it be practitioner or a client, they would describe it differently. And I was like, hmm, there's something, there's something off here. Then I started to do a little bit of research and I was like, oh, 
this is interesting. There is not a uh, unanimously agreed upon definition of what over quote unquote overeating means. And so that just led me to this path of, um, this is not describing what's actually happening for people. And, you know, in this context, diet culture will do everything it can to try to get you to eat less, no matter what it is. And so it's not like the use of, for example, overeating um, is a neutral term, similarly to things like binge eating or emotional eating. Even saying it, I can feel it like in my body, even though I don't believe in the way that it's used, the feeling of negativity that's that's around it. And so I think too, as um, individuals, we end up missing so much when we label our experience with food as overeating, mm. because um, there's probably so much that's happening that we can't get a full understanding of if we're placing this really negative label on overeating yeah. or yeah. Eat, or the eating experience in general. Yes, because it's like I'm defining this experience as, you know, bad, quote unquote, because I, again, quote unquote, overate. And, and it doesn't give you that chance to even like get curious around the eating experience, like what was going on. Maybe I was hungry and I actually didn't overeat. But like you said, with diet culture, they want us to eat less and less. So, you know, overeating, quote unquote, can look like, which I love you said this, looks so different. So that's where it's like, okay, so what is, what even is this? Cause no one can give like a straight definition. Um, yeah. And so then like, how do you see, and maybe specific, like in like client sessions, like when you're having kind of helping them get curious too, with their usage of that word, what do you see that being for them? Like, is it kind of like, confusing or pushback or freeing or kind of how do you see that like giving them the space to like redefine or even like let go of that word yeah well i think um challenging the use of common vernacular in this case um a lot of words that are fueled by diet culture and diet culture beliefs is often really tricky. And so, you know, when you said, what do I observe in um, practice? I observe all of that relief definitely over time of this isn't a way that I need to identify my eating patterns or even myself, because oftentimes um, with the experience of shame, we, I will hear often, I am a overeater or I am a binge eater. And so being able to separate that can be incredibly liberating. Um, and so I think there's both freedom in it and also so much righteous anger, frustration, and grief because for a lot of, for a lot of folks, um, as we begin to explore, you know, what's actually going on? If we didn't label it overeating, what would be left? What's happening yeah. if we slow things down? Um, and for a lot of people, they're not eating enough. They're not eating consistently enough. And what would be considered to be overeating might be quite normative eating, um, and so, yeah, I think it's a combination of, of all of the above, anger, pushback, freedom over time in really just normalizing the eating experience so that we can get a better sense of, do you need to be eating more food? What's the last 24 hours look like? Or, um, you know, excluding one's experience with and their history of their eating disorder, disordered eating and dieting history and their experience with restriction from the conversation of whether it be overeating, binge eating, emotional eating mm -hmm. is a huge miss. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. And I think too, I mean, I assume part of the root with like overeating 
comes from this idea of these like perfect portion sizes too, that like we should have at our meals of like, you know, I even think of like the plate, like, oh, if my plate isn't like, you know, however much vegetables and this and that, then you feel like you did something wrong. Or if you go back for seconds or whatever it may look like. But I love that of like getting curious instead of just slapping the label on it of overeating, getting curious of like, well, what was actually going on? Maybe I was more hungry. Maybe I worked out that day. So my hunger was even higher. Like it allows you the space to kind of get more curious and and listen to your body. And I think again, with diets, diet culture, eating disorder, it takes us away. Like they don't want us to listen to our body. Of course, they want us to follow these rules and these regimens and structure and all of that. And so in slowing down, I love that question you asked of like, you know, if you take that label away, what's left and seeing like, what is left? Like what, what's going on here? Maybe there's absolutely no reason I should feel guilty. Maybe I ate what my body needed and I'm not really used to that. I know I see that with a lot of clients as like, we're not even really used to like full, like true fullness because we're used to these like small portion sizes or diets or skipping snack. Like we're just fullness feels scary. And then it's easy to slap the label of, Oh, I must've ever ate because I feel full. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And understanding and um, dissecting the nuances in this case of both fullness and hunger, which is another thing that labeling the experience as being something bad, which is exactly what these, these words do, um, disconnects us from that. We're not able uh, in the process of slowing it down to get to know our body, to get to know the nuances. And that's what, you know, um, disordered eating does over time. We end up either usually, uh, on the spectrum of feeling, really ravenously hungry or what I sometimes call primal hunger, or we feel that really uncomfortable fullness and everything that happens in between gets eroded over time. And the beautiful thing is we get to reconnect with that. We get to practice that it's not gone or lost forever. Um, and it's definitely most certainly a, a process that can be difficult for some time of understanding you know, what, what's happening while you're eating. Mm, Yeah, that's so true. Because I think, I mean, I see oftentimes people being so out of touch with hunger fullness, and sometimes there's more going on too, if they've been restricting it, their hunger cues and fullness cues aren't showing up because of that as well. Um, But it can be very, very scary to, to take that leap of trust of like, okay, I can eat until I feel full. And I can also allow myself to eat when I feel hungry. I don't have to, it's literally like stripping away all these like rules and timeframes you have to eat in and all of that and allowing the freedom to, to even like learn what your specific hunger and fullness feels like. Because like you said, the nuances of it, like I get asked a lot, like, okay, so what does fullness feel like? What does hunger feel like? And I'm like, it can be different for different people. It can be different depending on the day. Like, there's not just like a clear cut, you know, black and white answer to it, which can be scary, but it, it gives clients the freedom to really like come home to their body and learn what, what it feels like for them. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I have an, uh, an exercise that I do with a lot of my clients, um, uh, as it relates to both hunger and fullness, because over time I've realized that for a lot of folks, the scale, which you'll see maybe intuitive eating spheres or other clinicians might use it, um, is a little bit tricky if someone has used numbers in their past that was part of their disordered eating or eating disorder. Um, 
or if they hold themselves to high standards or perfectionists, they might say, you know, get really attached to certain numbers. And so because so much of my work and this work is um, learning how to recultivate and develop the tools of being more embodied and from that place, understanding uniquely, as you described, what does fullness and hunger feel like? And so I'll have them um, separated into three categories of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, both fullness and hunger, and really begin to, to mark that, you know, do, do the homework of um, getting to know their own body in that way. Mm -hmm. And it's not so straightforward all the time, right? We are mm -hmm. experimenting and getting curious of like, okay, when I feel this, this sort of emptiness, okay, I think that's sort of pleasant hunger. I'm not quite sure. And then we practice and practice and practice over time. And so the, the journey of coming home is not only difficult, but as you said, can be scary, um, just generally, but also, you know, considering someone's trauma history or experience of what it's been like inside their body, the kind of ident identities that they hold, the oppression that they've experienced. I mean, there's, these are all things that we're navigating and uh, holding alongside of repairing, seeking to repair uh, our relationship with food in our body. Yeah. It's like such a complex thing where you would think, you know, it sounds like it should be easy of like, oh, so I just listen, like when, what does hunger feel like fullness? But it's, yeah, it's very complex and can be affected by so many things that, that maybe initially we wouldn't even think like, oh, I had this trauma when I was younger. So now that's affecting my hunger or fullness. It's like, yeah, because you probably, you know, maybe you're disassociating or maybe you don't feel super connected to your body and that's going to affect listening to anybody cues. Um, yeah. I feel like some of that people learn kind of as they work with practitioners too. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, and really honoring the wisdom that's there, even in the difficulty of all of it is so, so important. And you're right. It is absolutely like a peeling the onion back over time, you know, what, and, and, it, and it's okay to enter in where we enter in getting access to this kind of healing work. And as we continue to do the work, you just keep finding the layers where you're like, oh, yeah. it's connected to this. Oh, here's this other thing. Here's this other thing. And you just keep keep going and going mm -hmm. um, in that way. Yeah. Which can be so scary because then it's like, well, what layer is going to come next? Like once I keep connecting more and more with my body, what else am I going to unearth that, that maybe I've been trying to keep below ground for years? Yes. But yes. also that allows for so much healing to happen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which kind of loop back loops back to what we were saying about, you know, the notion of binge eating, overeating, emotional eating, we can begin to connect the dots as we peel back the layers of the onion of, of what might this be connected to? What purpose might this be serving? If that is what's yeah. happening and we are addressing, right? Cause we need to be addressing first always is someone getting enough food right? And, and rhythmically and consistently, um, variety, density, volume, all the things that we would work on together. But beyond that, it's like, okay, what, what else is, is going, going on here? And the fact that in, in this dieting culture that we exist in, we know that um, restriction is always elevated and, um, and, and eating beyond anything that diet culture tells us, which is um, not much at all, is demonized. And so anything beyond... Um, you know, just fullness in general or beyond that, of course, we're going to feel like we're doing something wrong because we've internalized those messages essentially from birth. That restriction is good. You're doing something quote unquote good. Um, yeah. And then nourishing yourself, feeding yourself uh, is, is bad. Mm, 
That's so true. And even kind of on the notion of emotional eating too, like I see, it's funny, like I feel like I'll see clients or even people on Instagram or just in conversation talking about, and I mean the same with overeating, but I see it a lot with emotional eating of like, oh, I'm struggling with emotional eating. I need to get over it. Like, how do I stop? And, and I see so much freedom when I like explain to clients, like, there's nothing wrong with emotional eating. Like we're all emotional eaters and, and yeah, maybe some of it, we need to get curious and see what's going on here. What's beneath, even like you said, beneath the label, like, is there, you know, things you're trying to hide from? Is there things we could do that food isn't helping serve that purpose? Um, but I think in writing something off just as like overeating or, and I think even specifically with this, like emotional eating, you're not digging into like, okay, well, what, what's actually going on here? Like, what's my body trying to tell me or what am I trying to like hide from? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because with, um, emotional eating instantly, I think of the way that this culture demonizes having emotions generally. Um, and so there's, there's some stickiness as I like to say around like, what does it mean to be a feeling breathing human being that has a range of emotions? Um, and you know, when we think about the experience of many women and femmes, um, that we, our emotions are essentially suppressed through the entirety of, of our lives. And so to, to begin to broach the topic of, um, not only is it okay to have emotions in your toolbox is to eat, to soothe emotions, that that is totally okay. And if we can slow it down, take off the label, get curious about it. Um, as you said, are we, are we able then to see, are you doing this to kind of distance yourself from what's coming up? Is this a tool of um, uh, what we would consider to be like a maladaptive co- coping mechanism, but nonetheless still a coping mechanism that you probably learned to deal with really hard things in your life? Um, is it because of one's experience with weight stigma? Is it because of one's experience um, with trauma or not having access to food either now or in the past? I mean, there's so much there that again, this is another case with emotional eating that by labeling it, we miss the opportunity to understand what's happening for yeah. for ourselves, for the individual. And granted, you know, I, I think um, over time, I would want, certainly as clinicians are doing this, to have it in their toolbox, right? I think it gets tricky or difficult if that's the only one. Um, but we're, you know, we're, we're adding to that over time. And the only way that we can add to our toolbox is really understanding like what's going on, which the label often prevents us from accessing. Yeah. Yeah. And I love what you said too, about even just our emotions in general, because, you know, a lot of us are taught from a young age, like emotions are bad, or maybe that there's certain emotions that you're allowed to feel. And then certain ones that, that you need to hide. Um, one thing that comes up, like, I feel like a lot of times when you see, like I saw, I was watching the framing Britney Spears documentary. I don't oh, know if you've seen I it. I keep meaning to watch but, it. I keep yes, meaning to watch it. <laughs> there was one part where she was being interviewed and she started crying and she just kept apologizing profusely. And that like really stuck out to me of like, that's like the message we're taught is like, we can't cry. And if we do, it's like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. This is my fault. Like I shouldn't be showing these emotions. And it's like, no, we're human. We should be show Like we should have a wide range of emotions. That's normal. Um, but yeah. And I think with that, And then again, letting go of that label of emotional eating, it helps clients in adding tools to their toolbox to see like, okay, when I feel sad, 
what do I need in that moment? And, and food for sure is one of those. And then what other tools can I add? So then I feel, you know, maybe more equipped to kind of navigate, like, is this a time where food is the answer? Or maybe it's food and something else, food and calling a friend, food and taking a bath, like whatever it may be. Um, it helps people see like it, the goal isn't like removing food as a coping mechanism. It's seeing what else could be added and how can you give yourself like, I don't know if grace is even necessarily the word, but just like allow yourself to use food as a coping mechanism because like permission. You said, yeah, permission. That's the word I'm looking for permission mm -hmm. because it can help. <laughs> like there's no denying that because food is, I mean, it can be one of the ultimate like comforts. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and, um, what's coming to mind is bringing back the agency of, of the, the person. So much of that is taken from us in so many ways. And if we're focusing on it just from a lens of existing in a dieting culture, we are constantly told that someone else has the answers to how we should be eating, how we should be moving, what we, what we should be doing, um, as it relates to anything um, in terms of movement and food. And so this, this work is so much about uh, cultivating a greater sense of agency that most certainly includes permission. You have permission to do this. And, you know, when we think about that too, in the context of um, emotional eating, binge eating, um, uh, quote unquote, overeating, if, if we're not looking at the ways in which, as I mentioned before, restriction is impacting then our experience, then, then we're missing something. So when we're able to say, okay, you have permission, how can we practice over and over again in thoughts and experiences having permission? And I'm sure you've experienced this too and seen this with your clients, the shift that happens because then there's no longer restriction going on. Um, and so then they have a greater sense of agency to be able to then choose, have some choices in that moment. Yeah, that's so good. And even with that permission and allowing food to actually serve that purpose and the emotion, it's like you're actually allowing, like you're actually fostering that emotion. You're allowing yourself to feel, heal, like whatever, whatever's needed in that moment, instead of, you know, if you label it like, oh, I, I overate, quote unquote, or I, I can't believe I ate instead of doing something else, you probably then are followed with shame, guilt. So then it's like, now you're adding more emotions to, to the fire versus like just allowing yourself to the permission of like, I'm sad and I just need some ice cream or it's been a hard day and I need to unwind with my favorite dinner. Like that can be so powering. So empowering. Yeah. yeah and it's interesting. The, the shame and guilt leads usually to one of two things either. I mean, most certainly lots of feelings and experiences and ways of coping with that, you know, shame and guilt, but either it leads to, okay, how can I begin to start restricting either in thoughts or in action, or the experience in and of itself will tend to lead to eating even more either in yeah. that moment or afterwards, because, yeah. because of the shame, because of the, um, the, the, the dialogue that's going on um, because of the really hateful, critical things that tend to come up after one experiences, you know, emotional eating, binge eating, um, or what they might consider to be overeating, which by the way, I, because I don't like that word overeating, I mean, I don't <laughs> like the other ones either. Yeah. Um, I tend to use eating, eating beyond your fullness as a way to describe that a little bit better. And one that I find resonates more. I love that because I think it can help. Like if clients are trying to describe that scenario, but want to use like a, yeah, a, a more helpful word. I like that a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And I love what you said too. It makes me think of that, like 
I feel like people posted a lot or, and it might've been in some book like that, like, okay, you're restricting. And then that leads to that, like eating beyond fullness. And it just kind of continues the guilt, the shame. And you're like on that hamster wheel and, you know, the power comes with being able to get off of it and knowing like, okay, maybe I did eat past my fullness, but who cares? Like, there's no one telling me that's bad. Um, or there are tons of people, but I know myself, <laughs> that's not bad. Like I like tomorrow's a new day and I can eat however much I want to eat. <laughs> like it's just, yeah, it could, that can be so, so powerful. Yeah. That's why I think getting support, if it's something that's accessible is so, so helpful because as you said, you know, there's, there's no one telling you. And then you're like, no, there's actually a lot of people. <laughs> like, <I don't> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Like we're swimming in diet culture, even if we do this work as, as professionals, I mean, we're, we're in it too. And so to have, um, especially as you're doing the healing work for like for clients or your audience that's listening to get support from a practitioner, from a dietitian, from a therapist, or to to uh, engage in support groups if that's that's possible in that way, if that's the way that you can enter it. And then, you know, beyond that, if, if finances are an issue, definitely starting with books to begin to understand books, blogs, um, to begin to unpack some of this because it is like you're going against the current um, and that can be exhausting. That can be lonely. Um, and of, of course, so easily we would go back to what we know and what feels safe, which is the eating disorder or the dieting or the disordered eating behaviors. And so to have what someone or a group of people or ideally a combination of all of the above, that's like, you got this and, um, we're going to swim with you with the current. So this feels, yeah. this feels easier. Mm, I love that you said that too, because I think it can be so helpful. And now, I mean, thankfully there are resources available at, you know, any level where, and that's the hard part about all of this too, is it takes a layer of privilege and financial accessibility to be able to work with a practitioner. But I mean, there's books and there's podcasts and Instagram, even following certain people on there, like there's tons of resources out there to help people in you know, any way, shape or form. Um, gosh, I could talk about this topic forever. <laughs> I'm like <laughs> looking at the time, like, I feel like we could yeah. be on here for hours talking. Yeah, um, totally. It's, it's so good. And it's so important. Um, and I know this conversation is going to touch so many people. Um, but the way I love to end podcast episodes is asking guests their favorite food memory. Um, because really a lot of like we've talked through, you know, we're kind of told like, restrictions, the goal, you're not supposed to enjoy food. And so, you know, I love hearing people's favorite food memory, just even as a way of like winning back food from diet culture. Yes. Ooh, I love this. <laughs> so I have so many favorite food memories and I also, I, I love that you asked this question because, um, I've written some, uh, blog posts on this and, um, the weekly newsletter that I send out every week, I also write a uh, letter to diet culture. And one of the letters that I wrote, um, was about specifically food memories because it, it is an essential critical part of, um, of, of our life, the joy, the celebration, the connection, the beauty, and, and, um, and, and how much that's just taken from us, whether it be from the eating disorder, or just diet culture in general. So I love this question. Um, I think there's so many, but if I had to choose one in this moment, ask me in like two minutes and I'll probably give yeah. you another one because I <laughs> love food and love talking about oh, food. Yeah. Um, 
But my grandfather growing up, my mom's dad loved growing tomatoes uh, during the summer and he wouldn't grow anything else. So there's this, this interesting um, yeah. curiosity and love of tomatoes. So we'd have this whole section of our backyard filled with different kinds of tomatoes. And I remember coming into the house and the tomatoes kind of set up above the sink in um, various colors, greens and reds. And in the summertime, you, you would get these freshly picked tomatoes, which if you are a tomato lover, mm. you know, oh, yeah. like I've been saying it, I can like <clears throat> imagine and yes. feel like my mouth is watering, mm. like the smell it when you put it up to your nose, even before you yes. cut it open. Um, mm. And so he'd, he'd slice those open and they'd be nice and juicy. And then you'd get fresh garlic. And I even remember like the mm. sound of him sharpening the knives because he was a chef and had like this very uh -huh. big presence in the kitchen. Um, he'd slice them up and he'd put fresh, uh, fresh smashed garlic on top of it, smother it in olive oil, salt and pepper. Um, and stick mm. them in the fridge for a bit so it could like really mm. soak in and so the yes. garlic could get into the oil. And then mm. we get this like big loaf always of like some sort of fresh, crusty, um, crunchy white bread. Um, mm -hmm. So it could be like a baguette or something kind yeah. of round and crunchy. And we'd have that. Um, and, it'd be, and I grew up on the East Coast. So it was, it was mm -hmm. this is like dead of summer, really, really hot. Yes. Yes. Um, so we'd have these like cold, delicious tomatoes and just scoop uh, it up with the yummy, like yummy bread. And he also, alongside of that, would make um, fresh uh, iced tea. So he'd had mm -hmm. he'd add like tons of oranges and lemons. Mm -hmm. We'd have this like cold uh, uh, ice iced tea with like these mm -hmm. juicy tomatoes and the bread. And it's just it's it's delightful and reminds yeah. me of you know my family of the summers on the east coast and mm -hmm. just like really connects me to my to my grandfather mm. I love that so much and now I'm like drooling I'm like I want yeah. everything you just described <laughs> it sounds so good um yeah, yeah I grew up on the east coast as well and I remember tomato ugh, there's nothing like fresh grown tomatoes garlic salt and pepper mm. Well, Catherine, thanks so much again for taking time out of your schedule to come on the show. It, it really means a lot. Um, and I know our audience is going to learn a lot from it. Um, if people want to learn more from you, where can people find you? Yeah. And thank you so much for, yeah. for having me. I'm so excited. And I hope this, um, this is really valuable to, to your listeners. I know that they probably benefit fit a lot from the work that you do and the podcast that mm -hmm. you produce. Um, but folks can find me most certainly on Instagram. I spend a lot of time on there. So um, that's at, at Brave Space Nutrition. Um, they can also find me on my website, which is just bravespacenutrition.com. And also I highly recommend signing up for my newsletter. I write um, mm -hmm. blog posts every single week. And as I mentioned earlier, um, the alternating weeks, mm -hmm. I will write a pretty cheeky letter to diet culture mm -hmm. as a way to sort of mix things up, up a bit, but that's definitely yeah. a place that um, people can come to learn more and um, connect more as well. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I need to sign up for your newsletter because I love the idea of the <laughs> Dear Diet Culture letters. Yes. Oh, yeah. I yeah. It's that. really fun. I enjoy yes. it. Yes. Good. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. Thank you so much again. Um, this episode was great. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to our show. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Food Freedom Podcast. Make sure you're following us on Instagram at Free Method Nutrition for more inspiring content on food freedom, intuitive eating, body respect, and many other things. If you're curious how you can support our podcast and help it to reach more people like you, we would love if you would take a minute to rate and review the show. 
We drop new episodes every Tuesday, so make sure you subscribe so you always catch our latest conversations. See you next episode.